Dave Davila was uh, 23 years old. He lived in uh, East uh, Moline, Illinois. And Dave decided to move to the big city of Chicago. Well, he had a close-knit, tight family. And when he left, they all missed him dearly. His mom missed him so much that she went and had a photograph taken of him and blew that photograph up full size and made a cardboard cutout of him and put it in the living room. So Dave was always there. They called him Flat Dave. Now when the real Dave came in, they would call him Thick Dave. But this cardboard cutout, they called him Flat Dave. And Flat Dave went to all the parties that the family had and the family was very well known there in Moline, Illinois. And so as they would go about, uh, people would request, bring Flat Dave with you to the party. People would have pictures made with Flat Dave. And, you know, it was just the, the image of Dave, but it reminded them that Dave was present with them in spirit, I guess. You know, we, we're big on images nowadays. Everybody wants to have pictures. We have these smartphones, and you have pictures right there. You can take an image, and you can have a picture of your grandkids right there in front of you all the time. Uh, my wife is big on taking pictures. You have Facebook that you can post those pictures on. You have FaceTime that you can actually call and see, uh, see them live on the other end. We're big on images. College athletes today get paid handsomely for their image in this new uh, name, image, and likeness uh, money that they're paying them to be a college athlete. We're big on images. You know what's interesting is we don't have an actual image of Jesus Christ, the most popular person in the world. We don't have an actual image of him. But in some ways we do have some images that we can come to know him. And today we're going to think about one of those images of Jesus that, uh, that we have. We're beginning a new series today, and it's called Hope is Alive. And this is going to lead us up through Easter and take us into the Sunday after Easter as we think about the life of Jesus. Specifically, we're going to look in Luke chapter 22, 23, and 24 and look at the last few days that Jesus was on earth and what happened after he was crucified and then after he raised from the dead. We're calling this, as I said, hope is alive because in Jesus we have this great hope, this amazing hope. I read an article this week. It's by a guy named uh, Drake Bear. The title of the article is What Good is Hope? This is what he says. Hope is an essential part of life. Humans seek after hope much like moths seek after light. It's intrinsic to who we are. Urologist Tally Sherratt argues that hope is so essential for our survival that it's hardwired into our brains, arguing it can be the difference between living a healthier life versus one trapped by despair. Studies have shown, says Bear, hopeful college kids get higher GPAs and are more likely to graduate. Hopeful athletes perform better on the field. In one study of the elderly, those who said they felt hopeless were more than twice as likely to die 
during the study follow-up period than those who were more hopeful. It's pretty clear, says the article, hope is a powerful catalytic. And why Dr. Shane Lopez, the psychologist who was regarded as the world's leading researcher on hope, claimed that hope isn't just an emotion, but it is an essential tool of life. So we're going to begin to think about hope over the next few weeks a little bit. And today we're going to think about this, this true biblical hope that we have. I want you to put on your thinking caps and begin to think about hope. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is being certain of what we hope for. So hope begins with faith in Jesus. And biblical hope is not just some kind of flippant hope. I hope maybe this happens. It is a confident, positive expectancy of things that are to come if we have hope in Jesus Christ. You know, hope is all around Jesus. When you study the life of Jesus, you, you come to think about the hope of a better world. You come to think about the hope of being forgiven of my sins and restored in a relationship with God. You think about the hope of eternal life and the security that you can have in knowing that one day you will be in the presence of God. Even in the face of death, we see hope in Jesus Christ. You know, the night before Jesus died, he gave us some image to help us remember the hope that we can have through faith in him. As he gathered with his disciples, he instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, we don't have an image of Jesus' physical body, but he has given us this supper to remind us of who he is and what he did for us. So the question I raise today is, why is the Lord's Supper so significant? I want you to think with me on that today. Jesus met with his disciples, and they met for a purpose, and that was to celebrate the Passover meal. Uh, it was one of three festivals that the Jewish people were to celebrate every year annually. And this was the first, and they would celebrate the fat Passover, and they would come together. It is to commemorate their exodus from Egypt when they were under slavery for 400 years. And God finally decided to bring the people out of slavery. He sent Moses to get them told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses went, but Pharaoh was reluctant to let them go. Uh, God sent plagues on Egypt, ten of them to be exact. We won't go through them all. But the last of those plagues was the death of the firstborn. And God went to the Hebrew people and said, if you will sacrifice a lamb and put some of the blood over the door frames of your house, when the angel of death comes through Egypt, he will pass over any house that has that blood on the door frames and your firstborn won't be taken. Well, the Egyptians, of course, didn't know about that. And there was weeping and wailing that night in all of Egypt. But the Hebrew people were rejoicing. And finally, Pharaoh relented and said the people could go. But they had to leave in haste. And so God told them to make bread without yeast. That is unleavened bread. And at the Passover meal, the celebration now, they always have unleavened bread to remember the haste 
in which they left, and they have roasted lamb, and, and they remember the blood put over the doorpost and the sacrifice uh, that was made that day. Tonight we're going to pick up the story here in Luke chapter 22. Uh, it begins at verse 7, talking about the preparation that was made that day for the, uh, uh, the meal that Jesus and his disciples would have. Jesus sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, into town. He said, you're going to find a guy there carrying a water jar. That was unusual in that day because the women usually went to the well to get the water and carried the jars. But this man would have had a water jar. He would have he stood out in that crowd of Jewish people and they followed him and he had prepared a room. The houses in Jerusalem were mostly square box type with a flat roof and some of them had an extra room built on top. This man's house was that way. There was a room on top and they rented those out during the Passover feast to out-of-towners so they could celebrate the Passover meal. And Jesus had prearranged with this man and all the fixings were there and John and Peter cooked the food and prepared for the meal that they would have that night. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14, we pick up the story. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What I want you to see as we begin is that Jesus desires this ceremony to be a special time. You know, it's interesting to me that he said, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. And he makes it clear, this is going to be the last one I eat for a long time. And, and uh, he instituted this ceremony or this ritual uh, that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, uh, it is also known by theologians as a sacrament. Uh, a sacrament is a religious act by which God's grace is communicated symbolically. And we'll see that in the Lord's Supper as we study this. There's also baptism is one of the sacraments. It is symbolic of how uh, God's grace is, is uh, it, it's an image of God's grace being given to the person who submits themselves to baptism. But this Lord's Supper is a ceremony that God wanted his followers to carry on. The apostles continued it when they started the church 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. In fact, if you study the book of Acts in the early part of Acts, it seems that every time the apostles met with any believers, they took the Lord's Supper. So it was, it was done often. And Jesus said, whenever you do it, to remember him in the act of this. Um, 
As the church grew and spread, it primarily happened on the first day of the week when it became the worship day for the church. And the New Testament really gives us more information and helps us understand this special time in which we are to participate on a regular basis. And the first thing I want you to think about in that is that it is a time of remembrance. I think Jesus wanted to burn into our mind the image of what he did through giving himself in sacrifice. In verse 19, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, it doesn't say it here in this text, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul records much information about communion, uh, he said that Jesus said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, do this in remembrance of me, speaking of the wine also. Jesus wanted us to remember. As I said, that yeast, uh, that bread was, uh, didn't have yeast. It was unleavened bread. It was a flat bread that they used because of the haste in which they left Egypt. So when they served communion later, they used that flat bread. That's what we use when we serve communion here. And of the bread, he said, this is my body given for you. We're supposed to think about his body and what that means when we come around the table to partake of communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, whoever partakes of this Lord's Supper without discerning the body of Christ is in the wrong. You know, I, I like a verse that's seldom read or seldom heard about. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has a lot about the Lord's Supper. But back in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's also a little short passage that speaks to communion. Verse 16 says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Though we serve many little pieces when we serve communion, they all started out as one loaf. They've been broken apart before we get them. But the point is, when we, when we partake of communion, we're supposed to remember the body of Christ. We're supposed to think about that body. And not just Christ's physical body, but the body now today is the, is the church. The Bible says the church is the body of Christ. So it's a time of fellowship. We're supposed to think about our fellow members and, and remember that we are part of this great thing, the body of Christ, the church, and we remember the sacrifice that Christ made. Now, some people I know hold that the bread and the wine actually become the flesh and the blood of Jesus when the priest prays over them. That would make us cannibals if that's true. I don't believe it's true. Others say Christ is present in the bread and the wine as heat is present in metal. I think that may be a good symbolic way to think of it, but I think mostly we are to just look at the, the bread and the juice as 
something to remember. Christ sacrificed. He gave his body. And that now we are his body here on earth. And he poured out his blood. And we should never forget the importance of the blood. And we should certainly remember it always when we partake of communion. His blood dripped out while he hung on the cross. You think about it. Nails pierced his hands and his feet. He had been beaten severely with the Roman cat of nine tails, a, a whip with a long handle and nine strands of leather coming off of it. At least 40 lashes and probably more. His back dripped with blood as he hung there on the cross and his blood was being poured out for each of us. He was a sacrifice. That goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11. The life of a creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. This is where God was instituting the sacrificial system that he gave the Hebrew people so that when they sinned, they could make an animal sacrifice as a substitute for themselves. Because when we sin, we are worthy of death. But God allowed this sacrificial substitution of an animal to pay the penalty for our sins. And for many years, the Hebrew, the Jewish people, practiced that, making uh, day after day sacrifices for the sins they had committed. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there has to be blood that is shed in order to make atonement that is to satisfy the penalty for sin. In the book of Hebrews, there's some good news. And chapter 7 talks about Jesus being our new high priest. In verse 27, Hebrews chapter 7, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for those sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus gave himself as the ultimate, one time for all, sacrifice. And the Bible says that all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins. So we remember Christ's physical body. We remember his body, the church. We remember his blood when we partake. And think about the hope that that symbolizes of what we have for our future. But it's not just a remembrance. It is also a time of commitment. Jesus said in verse 20, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. You know, when they partook of the Passover meal, they had four cups of wine set up that the family would partake. You had to have 10 members in a family in order to celebrate the Passover. If you didn't have 10 in your family, you joined with another family. So you always had at least 10 members. You had to eat all the food that was prepared. You couldn't save any of it. No leftovers from the Passover meal. And they had four cups at different points during the ceremony of the Passover meal they would drink of those cups. 
uh, two are mentioned here. In verse 17, uh, he takes a cup and passes it and says, share this among yourselves. In chapter, in verse 20, is probably the fourth cup uh, that Jesus takes. And, and there he talks in verse 20, this is the cup of the new covenant. Now in Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah told the people that there would one day be a new covenant. At that time, they were under the old covenant, that is the covenant of the law of Moses. And that covenant was that you were to keep the law when you sinned, you were to make an animal sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sins, and it was because of your faith in God that you would be forgiven. That's called the covenant of the law, or the covenant of the letter, because it's, it's written. But the new covenant is not based on law or letter. The new covenant is based on love and grace in Jesus Christ. The old covenant had an element of grace, but in order to access that grace, you had to bring an animal sacrifice every time you needed grace. There are some days when I would probably have to sacrifice a whole herd uh, if I really paid attention to my life. You had to study that law, and you had to know that law. And then you were open to the interpretation of the rabbis as to how you interpret it. And, and this restrained the people and kept them tied up all the time in law, and interpretation of law, and sacrifices. But God says under this new covenant, I'm going to write the law on your heart. He sends us the Holy Spirit when we make our commitment to Christ. And you know, that's what a covenant is. It's a commitment. Two parties make a commitment. Uh, it's sort of like a contract. A contract is more a legal thing. A commitment, a covenant is more of a spiritual thing. If you go back to uh, the book of Genesis in chapter 15, you will see that God made a covenant with a man named Abram, whom, whose name he would change to Abraham, and he became the father of the Jewish nation. Now in chapter 15, Abram is having a conversation with God. And God tells him, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make your people greater than the stars in the sky. And Abram says, how can that be? I don't have any kids. Well, you're going to have kids. You're going to have one, and through him, through his line, is going to come a whole nation of people. And I'm going to give you a land, the promised land. And Abram said, how can I know this is true? And God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice a heifer, a goat, a ram, and a dove, and a pigeon. And take those bigger animals and cut them in two. And this is how they made a covenant in those days. They would put the, the sacrificial animals cut in two on the ground, and then both parties would walk between those animals. And the significance of that was you were saying, if I break this covenant, then what has happened to these animals will happen to me. So Abraham falls to sleep. God put him in a deep sleep. And verse 17 says that. says this. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot 
and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces. You got to know that that's God moving through that those two pieces. He's doing his part on the sacrifice. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, "To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates." God made a covenant with Abram. Jesus makes a new covenant with us. It's not a covenant of law. It's not a covenant of the letter. It is a covenant of love and grace. And God tells us to love Him and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the love part. And that our grace comes through our faith in Jesus and what He did on the cross. And in the covenant, we agree Jesus' part is to be our Lord, which is our leader, and He is to be our Savior, which He is our forgiver, so that we are restored in a relationship with God. Our part is to be His disciples, His followers. We follow Him as Lord, and, and, and our part is to be His loving servants in His kingdom. And so we agree to do those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks a little further about what this uh, Lord's Supper means. And in verse 27 there of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, he says, So whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. We're to examine ourselves when we partake of this. Not that we, we say, oh, look at how holy I am, look at how perfect. But we think about our shortcomings. God has forgiven us, but we remind ourselves that we need forgiveness. And we think about the, the areas where we can live a better life as we come before Him. And we partake uh, examining ourselves. You know, this is not something that we do flippantly or lightly. When I was in Bible college, I was studying for the ministry. Uh, my family went to hear one of my fellow students preach at a little small church. He was a fill-in preacher while their preacher was on vacation. And we went. I wanted to hear my friend preach. And we took our whole family, and it was a little small church, and they didn't have any young people in that church, and they didn't have any kids in that church. So there was about 20 or 30 people there, and my family showed up, and we made a big difference in their attendance that day. There were Caitlin wasn't born yet, but we had three little boys, and Jeanette and I. And... Uh, and when they serve communion, of course, we don't offer communion to those who are not believers. So MJ was just two or three years old, and he's sitting in the pew with us. And they passed the juice, and they passed the bread by. And MJ stood up in the pew and announced to everybody, I want juice, I want crackers. Well, luckily, there was a, a godly lady there in the church, and she came and got MJ and said, Come on, son, I'll get you some juice and crackers and took him to the fellowship hall. 
that day. He didn't understand. This, this, this meal is for those who understand, for those who believe in Jesus, for those who have made a commitment to follow Him in this new covenant. But there's one more thing I want you to think about. It is a time of proclamation. The Apostle Paul gives further insight in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you partake of this meal, this Lord's Supper, you are saying, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that he's coming back and that he's going to redeem his people and take them into eternity to spend a life in a new heaven and a new earth where God is present. I tell you, this meal is meant for believers, and it's meant for us to point to Christ, remembering Him, committing to Him, proclaiming that we believe that He's coming back. Well, here's our connection. The Lord's Supper is a multifaceted experience to celebrate the hope of fellowship that we will enjoy with Christ. Listen, we love to have fellowship here at Central, but you have not experienced the kind of fellowship that you're going to have in eternity when all God's people are gathered and Jesus is there, present, and God himself is with us, and there's no more tears and no more crying, and no more pain. You know, we don't have a cutout, a cardboard cutout that we can set up here of Jesus. Not an actual one that we really know that's what he looked like. But we do have these elements that we can partake. We have this bread that helps us remember his body. And we have the juice that helps us remember his blood poured out. And yes, it's kind of sad to think about that, But there's great joy in knowing that he willingly did it to pay the penalty for our sins. And through faith in him, we are forgiven and restored into a glorious relationship with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for Jesus and what he means to our lives, for his willingness to sacrifice, and for his foresight to set up this Lord's Supper, this communion meal, that we might remember the great sacrifice that he made, but that we might also acknowledge that he did it because he loves us and he wants to be in a covenant relationship with us and that one day he's coming back and as we partake, we proclaim boldly that we believe. In his name, we pray and praise today. Amen.